0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being pre-recorded on the 4th of September for the listening week that begins the 17th. Your reader's name is Susan Shireith. First article this week comes from the New York Times. This was posted August 18th written by Deborah Kamen. Home appraised with a black owner 472,000 with a white owner 750,000. Nathan Connolly and his wife Shani Mott say an appraiser company undervalued their home based on their race The couple has filed a lawsuit in Maryland. Last summer, Nathan Connolly and his wife Shannie Mott welcomed an appraiser into their house in Baltimore, hoping to take advantage of historically low interest rates and refinance their mortgage. They believed that their house improved with a new $5,000 tankless water heater and $35,000 in other renovations, was worth much more than the 450000 that they paid for it in 2017. Home prices have been on the rise nationwide since the pandemic. In Baltimore, they have gone up 42% in the past five years, according to Zillow.com. But 2020 Valuations, a Maryland appraisal company, put the home's value at 472000 and in turn Loan Depot, a mortgage lender, denied the couple a refinance loan. Dr. Connolly said he knew why. He, his wife, and three children, age 15, 19, and 9, pardon me, that's 15, 12, and 9, are all black. A professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Connolly is an expert on redlining and the legacy of white supremacy in American cities and much of his research focuses on the role of race in the housing market. Months after that first appraisal, the company pardon me, the couple applied for another refinance loan, removed family photos, and had a white male colleague, another Johns Hopkins professor, stand in for them. The second appraiser valued the house at $750,000. This week Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott sued Lone Depot which is based in Foothill Ranch California as well as 2020 valuations and Shane Lanham the owner of 2020 valuations Mr. Lanham is the appraiser who conducted the first appraisal said Dr. Connolly who is 44 we were clearly aware of appraisal discrimination But to be told in so many words that our presence and the life we've built in our home brings the property value down, it's an absolute gut punch. The home appraisal industry, which relies partly on subjective opinions to translate home values into dollars and cents, has faced a firestorm of criticism over the past two years. More than 97% of home appraisers are white according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and since the summer of 2020, when conversations on race and discrimination in America rose to the forefront following the murder of George Floyd, dozens of black homeowners have alleged discrimination in the home valuations they've received. Some have filed lawsuits and the Biden administration in March announced a set of planned reforms to overhaul the appraisal industry and dismantle systemic bias. Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott live in the North Baltimore neighborhood of Homeland, known for its strong public schools and colonial architecture, which has earned it a place on the National Register of Historic Places. A majority of their neighbors are white. According to their complaint, which was filed in Maryland District Court on Monday, the couple applied to refinance their mortgage with Loan Depot in May 2021. The lender approved a loan at a rate of 2.25% and according to the complaint, told the couple that their home was likely now worth 550000 or more. To conduct the appraisal, Loan Depot hired 2020 valuations as a subcontractor. Mr. Lanham conducted the inspection himself on June 14, 2021. According to the complaint, Dr. Connolly, Dr. Mott, and their three children were home during the visit, and their house was also filled with family photos, children's drawings of figures with dark skin, a poster for the film Black Panther, and literature by black authors. Dr. Mott lectures on literature and Africana studies. It would have been obvious to anyone visiting that the home belonged to a black family, reads the complaint. The appraisal came back just twenty two thousand dollars more than they had paid, and Loan Depot based its rejection of the couple's application on that low number. The couple criticized the way Mr. Lanham came up with his appraisal. Home appraisers frequently rely on the sales comparison approach in which they weigh real estate against the sale prices of similar nearby homes to determine value. Mr. Lanham's appraisal he selected three homes with values ranging from 435,000 to 545,000. A fourth comparable which sold for 650,000 was ultimately not used in his valuation. The first home used argues the complaint, would be considered a fixer-upper, which the home of Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott is not. The second is outside the boundaries of the homeland neighborhood amid a majority black consensus block of homes. In the third, he deducted $50,000 from the comparison amount because Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott's home faces a busy street. A deduction, says the complaint, that is excessive and is inconsistent with proper appraisal practices. Another 20000 was deducted for the quality of construction. All of the selected comparable homes, the complaint says, were of lower quality than Dr. Conley and Dr. Mott's home, and the appraisal incorrectly stated that their home had not received any updates for 15 years. According to the complaint, Mr. Lanham Cherry picked low-value homes as comps, and by doing so, he ignored legitimately comparable homes with much higher sales prices. When reached by phone on Tuesday, Mr. Lanham declined to comment. Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott wrote a letter to Christian Jorgensen, a lending officer at Loan Depot, who had been their main point of contact up to that point, challenging the appraisal. According to the complaint, the loan officer then stopped responding to their calls. Mr. Jorgensen did not respond to requests for comment. Several months later, the couple applied for a new loan with Swift Home Loans, which partnered with Rocket Mortgage. This time they underwent a whitewashing experiment, removing indications of blackness from their home and replacing them with signifiers that a white family might live there instead. They cleared their bookshelves of works by black authors. They asked white friends to share family photos and placed those in picture frames around the house. On their walls, they hung art bought at IKEA that showed white people. An American flag that was presented to Dr. Mott 10 years ago after the death of her father, a Vietnam War veteran, was removed from storage, framed, and placed on the mantle. Dr. Connolly said, We had to have a conversation with our kids about why we're pulling down all of their drawings. It's very humiliating to strip yourself of your own home. On the day of the second appraisal, they left their home and had their white colleague answer the door. The second appraiser provided the $750,000 estimate. The homes pulled by the second appraiser were of significantly higher value than those selected by Mr. Lanham, selling from between 749 dollars to $785,000. And while Lanham docked $50,000 or 10% from the comparable homes that were not on a busy road, the second appraiser deducted $15,000, 2%. The complaint says that the 2% adjustment is consistent with industry standards. Race has long played a role in housing policy in the United States and black Americans are denied mortgages at disproportionate rates. The impact of redlining, a racist, depression-era housing policy, continues to drive down home values in black neighborhoods and deprive resources of com- for communities of color. But Dr. Mott and Dr. Connolly do not live in a black neighborhood. The disparity in the two appraisals echoes a lawsuit brought by Tanisha Tate Austin and Paul Austin, a black couple in California's Bay Area, who have accused an appraiser of lowballing their home's value by $500,000. That case, said Mr. Austin, is scheduled for mediation. A chance to resolve the matter before heading to court in September we're looking to hold people accountable said mr austin mr austin said it was a big step for president biden and vice president kamala harris to say that they want the appraisal industry to be overhauled but i do not pardon me but i do believe it is going to take quite a few more lawsuits in order for appraisers to stop devaluing black and brown properties he said it's an historical aspect of how people value black and brown lives the Justice Department's move in the Austin case came several months after Mr. Biden announced the creation of the Interagency Task Force on Property Appraisal and Valuation Equity, which aims to evaluate the causes of appraisal bias and execute an action plan to root it from the industry. The task force is led by Susan E. Rice, the White House Domestic, pardon me, domestic Policy Advisor, and Marsha L. Fudge, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. One year in, say senior HUD officials, they're working to bolster its governance over the appraisal foundation, which sets standards for appraisers. Of course, it is not unheard of for appraisals to be far off the mark. One study in 2012, for example, found a wide berth between what was said to be the values of homes and their eventual sales prices. Nevertheless, discrimination on appraisals continues to trouble those who work in the industry. James Park, executive director of the Appraisal Subcommittee, the independent federal agency that monitors the Appraisal Foundation, said he is deeply disturbed by accusations of discriminatory appraisals that continue to come to light. Mr. Park said, It's a concern, and it should be a concern for the entire appraisal industry as well as mortgage lenders. John Relman, manager par- managing partner of Relman Colfax, the law firm representing Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott, said, Appraisal discrimination is insidious because it's so nuanced. But what's unique about this case is it's not a typical redlining case. You can't get more accomplished than these two individuals. They have done everything the market told them to do, and they invested in a community where everyone else had the benefit of rising real estate values, and yet they were still discriminated against. Last week I promised further tribute to Serena Williams, and here's one for that. This comes from the Washington Post. It was posted August 27th written by Jerry Brewer. Serena Williams is about to shatter the ceiling for retired female athletes. Serena Williams, almost 41 years into her eternity, will keep aging well. She will be done playing competitive tennis soon, perhaps within the next few days, but that means only that the cultural icon can supersede the player. This is her commencement, not a finale. If you have been in awe of Williams' longevity on the court, just wait and watch and marvel anew. Her profound influence is poised to endure and allow her to break yet another barrier, this one for retired American female athletes. Few superstars, no matter their gender, outlive their playing days in women's athletics The Immortals are celebrated for their societal impact and trailblazing importance in an inequitable sports world, but they haven't also had a cultural magnetism that translates to the economic power that Williams possesses. In that way, she comes as close to Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, or LeBron James as any woman has ever gotten. With sustained excellence and persistent authenticity, Williams has been able to acquire it all, admiration, fame, wealth, power, transcendence. As she leaves tennis, her exit velocity is stirring to observe. She's not just receiving her flowers. She's not just assured a legacy that will ripple through all of sports forever. She's not just cemented in pop culture and primed to become a multifaceted mogul. Williams still has infinite blank pages in her playbook, a pen that won't run out of ink, and the freedom to design the rest of her life however she wants, knowing that she has the leverage to implement those dreams. Williams wrote in a Vogue cover story announcing her farewell. Farewell plans, pardon me. I have never liked the word retirement. It doesn't feel like a modern word to me. I've been thinking of this as a transition and I want to be very sensitive about how I use that word, which means something very specific and important to a community of people. Maybe the best word to describe what I'm doing is evolution. The most extraordinary athletic lives require distance to fully comprehend. Williams has accomplished and meant so much that she's impossible to capture in this moment even though she has been in the public eye for a quarter of a century. Time will make her tale all the more impressive as perspective catches up with wonderment. But even then, she will still seem like a figure from the future. Her mighty brand will strengthen. Her example will inspire for generations and her earning potential will remain so high you will think she never stopped playing. Forbes estimates Williams' net worth to be $260 million. A year ago, she didn't play much and earned about $300,000 for her on-court performance. Nevertheless, she grossed another $45 million, mostly from endorsement deals about with about pardon me, a dozen companies, ranging from Nike to Gucci to Anheuser-Busch. She launched a new clothing line three years ago that continues to be successful. She and her sister Venus have owned a small stake in the Miami Dolphins since 2009. She announced in March that her venture capital fund, Serena Ventures, raised $111 million in its initial round. Williams is married to Alexis Ohanian, an entrepreneur who co-founded Reddit. Before they fell in love, they bonded while talking business. Williams will stay relevant through financial savvy, celebrity, and the idolization of younger stars who will follow her script. Naomi Osaka has already learned from Williams, and with her own style, she has become the highest paid female athlete in sports. In our male-dominated sports society, there is no woman's, me, no women's sport that stays top of the mind for an extended period, which undermines the marketability of even the biggest stars. But there are holes in this misogynistic setup, and because Williams kept at it for so long, she was able to carve out her own space with an approach that can be mimicked and expanded. At a time when authenticity is gold, Williams epitomizes it. She never changed. She excelled through the skepticism, sexism, and racism. Her prolonged greatness forced almost everyone to get on her level or shut the hell up. I definitely view her as a role model, said Alia Boston, a South Carolina forward and reigning national player of the year in women's college basketball. She went on, powerful and strong women dominating is something that's important for me to see, I want to follow in her footsteps." It always comes back to the image of power Williams projects. She is defined by her muscular frame and the force with which she plays. Boston is twenty years younger than Williams. She was born just as Williams began to take over in tennis. As she grew into a physical six-foot-five post player, Boston looked for athletes who could reassure her that dominance fit with femininity. Williams showed Boston there is beauty in power and there is beauty in unapologetic black women who unleash their power. In Williams, Boston found a fashion icon with a 125 mile per hour serve. She saw Williams twerking in a Beyonce music video and then smashing her racket at the US Open. She saw power in Williams' play and personality, but most of all, Boston saw a woman free to be a complete woman. When I was younger and playing sports, it was like, Oh, I don't want to look too aggressive and angry, said Boston, 20, a native of the the U.S. Virgin Islands. Serena, she's dominant, but she is who she is. She never changes herself for anyone. To be able to see that was a great vision for me because stepping onto the basketball court as a post player you never want to get punked. That's who we are. That's how we compete. I can embrace that and off the court I can embrace my girly side. The world tries to convince us this is the opposite of grace but after nearly three decades in the spotlight how can you not see the grace in Williams? If her power once alarmed the gatekeepers of perception, she wore them down with her relentlessness. Williams mastered the concept of owning your narrative, yet she still comes across as human, vulnerable and real. She will exit tennis as an honest and open mother, as a boss, and in many minds as the GOAT. And this is just the end of phase one. It is clear you haven't seen the last of Serena Williams, but what if you haven't seen the best of her either? As the icon commences with evolution, the revolutionary tennis star lives on in the athletic successors who will follow her blueprint. The future looks inspiring. next article is an historical perspective on some sports news. This was posted August 28th, written by Chris Lamb, and it's from the Washington Post. An all-black little league team made history without playing a game. Fourteen little league baseball players and ten adults got on an old battered bus at the Cannon Street YMCA in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, on the evening of August 24, 1955, to drive more than 700 miles to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, for the Little League World Series. The riders were all black, so they started their 24-hour journey at nightfall, worried they might draw suspicion rolling through the Jim Crow South. Their fears were real. The bus would pass near Conway, South Carolina, 100 miles to the north, where 1,500 Klansmen and their families had attended a speech by E. L. Edwards, the Imperial Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, four days earlier. The Cannon Street team wasn't going all this distance in a broken-down bus on unfriendly roads to play in the World Series. The team knew it would not be allowed to compete. Yet it became what Creighton Hale, the former chief executive of Little League Baseball, called the most significant amateur baseball team in history. Before white supremacists stood outside newly integrated schools to prevent black children from attending. They stood at the edge of Little League baseball fields to prevent black boys from playing baseball with white boys. And as some of the country's top young baseball players take the field Sunday for the finals of the 75th Little League World Series in Williamsport, the legacy of the Cannon Street team lives on in a league whose biggest barriers the Charleston players helped break down. It's a tragedy to take dreams away from youngsters, said John Rivers, the team's shortstop who became a successful architect. I knew it then, I know it now, and I've seen it pardon me. and I've seen to it that no one takes dreams away from me again. The Black Run Cannon Street YMCA was founded in downtown Charleston in 1950 as a meeting place where its president, Robert Morrison, and other activists could talk about civil rights and other racial issues without scrutiny from white people. The Y became a hangout for boys to play baseball or basketball and a place where they found mentors to help them negotiate the uncertain world of racial prejudice. In 1955, Morrison waded into the civil rights struggle when he registered the Cannon Street League's all-star team for a little league tournament in Charleston. Jackie Robinson had integrated Major League Baseball eight years earlier, but the white parents of Charleston weren't ready to let their sons play baseball with black boys. The Cannon Street team won the tournament by forfeit when the white teams all withdrew in protest amid widespread Southern resistance to the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education that struck down segregation in public schools The Cannon Street team advanced to the state tournament. Little League Baseball, citing the organization's prohibitions against racial discrimination, ordered the white teams to play the Cannon Street squad. The adult managers of the teams responded by seceding from the organization and creating a segregated youth baseball league. Hundreds of other teams in the South followed. The boys wore Confederate flags on their uniforms. The organization Dixie Youth Baseball still exists, though it has been integrated for decades. The Cannon Street team again won the tournament by forfeit and advanced to the regional tournament. If it won there, it would qualify for the World Series. But Little League Baseball President Peter McGovern declared the team ineligible for the regional tournament because, according to organization rules, teams had to win on the field, not by forfeit, to advance. The 11 and 12 year old All Stars ended their season without ever playing a game or finding out how good they were. McGovern, who admitted regret over his decision, invited the team to be the organization's guests at the World Series. Decades later, Rivers bristled at McGovern's response. Rivers said, The compromise was let them come, but don't let them play. You know, try to walk the fence. All right, that would satisfy everybody. Well, it didn't. At the time, however, Rivers and his teammates were thrilled about going to Williamsport. Just the idea of getting on a bus with your friends for a long trip was more exciting than Christmas, he said. Many of the boys had never left Charleston. Some had never been away from their parents for a night. Morrison had raised money for the state and regional tournaments that went unspent after the tournaments were canceled. He contributed some of his own money and collected donations to fund the treat pardon me to fund the team's trip to Williamsport. Morrison had a bigger agenda than baseball. He created the Cannon Street League and registered its all-Star team for a tournament to confront segregation and advance the cause of racial equality. White newspaper columnists and editorial writers condemned the South Carolina teams for refusing to let their boys play a black team. Dick Young of the New York Daily News called for McGovern to resign for not adhering to his organization's ban on racial discrimination. Morrison recognized he could keep the story in the newspapers if he went to Williamsport. Little League Baseball officials welcomed the Cannon Street team and invited it to stay in the same dormitory as the other teams and eat breakfast with them. The Cannon Street players were introduced by the public address announcer and according to the players given a short practice before the championship game between teams from Delaware Township, New Jersey, and Morrisville, Pennsylvania. As the Cannon Street players walked off the field, they heard spectators cheering loudly, let them play, let them play. Rivers said, I can hear it now. Team members took their seats for the championship game, and the heartbreak of not being able to play washed over the players. Their disappointment is clear in a photo taken of them as they watched the game. Hardly any of the boys are smiling. They saw the integrated New Jersey team and wondered why they weren't allowed to play like the black kids on that team. They thought they were better than the players they watched. They were convinced they would have won, given the opportunity. While their bus drove back to Charleston, Emmett Till, who was not much older than the Cannon Street players, was kidnapped from his uncle's house in Mississippi and murdered. A few months later, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Over the next several decades, the players rarely talked about what happened in Williamsport, but in the past 25 years they've told people why their story needs to be remembered. In 1995, Sports Illustrated ran a story about the team Seven years later, Little League Baseball brought the players back to Williamsport, where they received a banner for winning the South Carolina State tournament. They were introduced and given a standing ovation. Leroy Major, the team's best pitcher who became a teacher in Charleston, received a letter from a boy in Pennsylvania who thanked him for his contributions to the Civil Rights Movement and said he should be remembered the way Parks and others are. Major said, Tears came to my eyes. Back to the New York Times now for an article from their arts section. This was posted on September 1st, written by Reggie Ugwu. Michael Schultz broke the mold for black directors. He's not done yet. At 83, the filmmaker behind Cooley High and Carwash may be the longest working black director in history, his own story is a Hollywood epic. When Michael Schultz began work on his first film in 1971, there was no road map for a lengthy career as a black director in Hollywood. The first two studio movies to employ black directors, Gordon Parks' The Learning Tree, 1969, and Ozzie Davis's Cotton Comes to Harlem, 1970, had only relatively recently left theaters. And the movement that would soon be known as exploitation, mimicking the work of Davis, Parks, and the trailblazing independent filmmaker Melvin Van Peebles, did little to suggest a promising future. Schultz was 32 at the time and a rising star of the New York theater scene. He had been tapped to direct a public television documentary To Be Young, Gifted, and Black adapted from the book by Lorraine Hansberry. Though he didn't know it, Schultz had already begun an improbable course that would take him to the heart of the mainstream film and television industry, where he had essentially remained for the past five decades. Although he has cast a more modest shadow than some of his peers, Schultz holds a singular resume. He has directed more than a dozen films, including the classics Cooley High, 1975, Car Wash, 76, and Crush Groove, 85. He is responsible for the first feature film appearances of Denzel Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, and Blair Underwood, and has worked consistently in television since the 1990s. At 83 years old, and due behind the camera this fall for season five of the CW drama All American. He is probably the longest working black director in history. Last month I met Schultz in New York at the offices of the Criterion Collection, which in December will release a remastered special edition of Cooley High, which is a coming-of-age drama set in the 1960s at a school in Chicago. Schultz is slim and energetic with an easy-going manner and a guitar-pick shaped face framed by wavy silver hair. In a darkened editing suite he directed a sound engineer to raise the soundtrack of a pivotal pardon me, of a pivotal scene by four decibels. He said, I wanted to make sure that people can hear it. They're going to be watching at home and all kinds of stuff is happening at home. At lunch later that afternoon and over several earlier phone and video interviews, we discussed the winding trajectory of his career. These are edited excerpts from our conversations. When you look at Cooley High today, what do you see? I see really good performances by Glenn Turman, Lawrence Hilton, Jacobs, Garrett Morris. I see some things I wish I could have done better. Like what? Like showing Larry as a basketball superstar. That little squish he does is pretty hokey. It would be nice to set his character up a little better, little nitpicky things like that. Do you always have that feeling when you've completed a film? You're never satisfied because there's always something you missed or something that you didn't think of in the shooting of it. But there's also always wonderful things that happen that you didn't think of because of the communal creativity of the actors and the cameraman and all of the elements that make up the film. It's a dual universe, good and evil, black and white, up and down. It's become famous for its soundtrack, which is wall-to-wall Motown, The Supremes, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson. How did you get all of those songs? I was using Motown music on the set and in the editing room just because I loved it, but nobody valued that music at the time. Really? Yep, we were, ready. Pardon me, we were able to get it for a very reasonable fee, which was good because the budget for the whole film was like $900,000. The problem came when they wanted to put it out on cassette, because by then, the music had had this resurgence, and the studio couldn't afford it. It wasn't until much later, after Motown got bought by Universal, that they were finally able to do a deal. You started out in the theater in New York with the Negro Ensemble Company. How did you end up there? I had moved to New York after studying theater at Marquette in Milwaukee, where I grew up. My wife and I were working with the McCarter Theater in New Jersey when Douglas Turner Ward and Robert Hooks were just starting the Negro Ensemble Company. My wife suggested I drop my resume off with them before we went on to the road to do a play that she was acting in and I was directing. Douglas Turner Ward ended up coming out to Yellow Springs, Ohio to see it and offered me any of the plays in the Negro Ensemble Company's opening season. I chose Song of the Lusitanian Bogey, which ended up being their very first production. You made the transition to features in the same year that Superfly came out, 1972, right after Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Shaft, both 71. What did you make of Blaxploitation? I thought what Melvin Van Peebles, the director of Sweet Sweetback, was doing was very inspirational. He self-distributed that film, and I learned a lot from watching Gordon Parks, the director of Shaft, but when it devolved into all this stereotypical stuff, Hell Up in Harlem, Sheba Baby, all the pimps and fur coats, I said, wait till I get my break because I'm going to do it a lot better than this. There was a huge backlash at the time within the black community in editorials in Ebony from the Coalition Against Exploitation, which included the NAACP from Jesse Jackson. The argument was that the movies were degrading and setting us back. Did you participate in those debates? I agreed with the criticism in a way, but to me, providing work for actors who couldn't get work was a very important thing to do, and so it wasn't so black and white yeah, they're putting white people on top of the pyramid most black exploitation films after the initial wave were directed by white men. But they're keeping black people working. I was against the tired imagery, especially given the power of the medium and the influence that it has on people's minds. Unless you have a counter, unless you can see other versions of who we are, it's damaging. When you started working in Hollywood, did people ever think that you were white because of your name? All the time. And there was an assumption that I was Jewish, even though it's a German name. It happened in New York, actually. My agents got me a meeting with the producers of a big Broadway show called ye? They had seen my name on other hit shows in town, but they'd never seen my face. I've never done a lot of PR, so I walk into this meeting and all of the faces in the room just fall. They couldn't even keep it together. Oh, wow, what happened? I didn't get the gig. It was, oh, oh, we we thought, well, it's good to meet you. And then I didn't hear from them again. Do you have German in your family? Not that I know of. I did the DNA thing and there's significant European ancestry, but it's so far back that who knows. You cast Denzel Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, and Blair Underwood in their first feature films. What was your secret? Sam was a student at Morehouse. We were shooting together for days in Atlanta, and he came in to audition for a background role. When I watched him, I said, this guy needs a speaking part. He was very natural. He was the kind of kid who you don't see the acting with. There was a certain ease. When Denzel came in for Carbon Copy, a race comedy, also starring George Segal, about a white businessman who finds out he has a long-lost black son, I knew immediately that this was the guy. He was centered and focused, with a real self-assuredness that made him seem mature for his age. He wasn't in awe of any of the things around him. And he was very handsome. I did tell him, though, Hey, if you want to be a leading man, you better get that gap in your front teeth taken care of he laughs and he did wait he did i said it's not a requirement you got the part but i'll tell you one thing i've never seen a leading man with a gap in his teeth parentheses a representative for washington declined to comment since the night pardon me since the 1990s you've worked most frequently as a television director What do you like about that medium? When I was starting out, everybody in the film, pardon me, everybody in film looked down their nose on television. I always thought that was stupid. My feeling was, hey, television reaches millions of people. It's not crazy. Pardon me again, it's crazy not to want to get your story out to an audience of that size. But would you rather have made, pardon me again, but would you rather have been making features? No, because around that same time our family was going through some personal difficulties. Our oldest son was stricken with schizophrenia and I had to have a steady stream of income coming in. I'm sorry. Thank you. I had to keep working to get him the level of care that he needed. I couldn't wait around for six months to get the green light for a feature. That sounds really scary. It was, but we had really good psychiatrists, therapists, and these new medicines, psychotropics. The scary thing was when he would have a relapse. You're always afraid that they'll end up on the street and the cops will get involved or shoot them down. But we just weren't willing to let him go. Fortunately, our son is okay today. How do you think you've been able to survive through so many seasons of change in the industry? I'm good at what I do and focus on what's best for the project. Maybe it's my theater background, but I like to work very collaboratively and make everyone a part of the process. In the last decade there's been a real resurgence in black filmmaking, with many more black directors working regularly than in the past. What has it been like for you to see that evolution? It's extraordinarily gratifying to see the talent and to see so many avenues for young people to develop and get in the mix, and they're coming with the goods. I don't think it would have happened though if there weren't black executives as well. Ryan Coogler had a black executive supporting Black Panther. Nate Moore, Marvel Studios' vice president of production and development. When you have—pardon me—when you have the creative and the executive in sync that's when extraordinary things can really happen. We saw that way back when with the Negro Ensemble Company. Final question. When you're on set today, is it still as fun as it used to be? Oh yeah, I still get the butterflies when I'm starting something new. Am I going to mess this up? But once I'm in there it just flows. People keep asking me when I'm going to retire and I always say, retire from what? Having fun? I'll retire when either my body gives out or it starts to feel like work. But right now, I'm having fun, and they're still paying me. And following that, we'll segue with, from the New York Times, In Familiar Works, A Chance for Black Film and TV Actors to Shine. This was posted September 2nd, written by Maya Phillips. On Broadway this fall, it's less about new playwrights making their debuts and more about established stars giving the stage a shot. One of the most exciting parts of the 2021-22 Broadway season was the number of people who looked like me, both on stage and behind the scenes. We saw the Broadway debut of seven plays by Black playwrights, starring Black actors in an art form that too often tokenizes people of color, alienates them, misrepresents them, or ignores them altogether. But even when productions are bathed in the bright lights of Broadway, they can still be overlooked. Many of last fall's works seemed to disappear as quickly as they appeared in the tough post-shutdown return period. This fall Broadway may not have as many new works by black playwrights, but it will serve old favorites with promising casts of versatile black actors who have built careers not just on the stage, but also in film and TV. One of last season's highlights was the playwright Alice Childress receiving her long-overdue Broadway debut with the stunning comedy-drama Trouble in Mind. So what better time to give even more neglected writers of color their moment in the spotlight? The experimental black playwright, Adrian Kennedy, will follow this November with a similarly belated premiere, a production of her harrowing 1992 play, Ohio State Murders, starring the stage luminary Audra McDonald as a writer who returns to her alma mater to speak about the violent imagery in her work. A lethal mix of present-day racial injustice and unrelenting racial trauma from the past, Ohio State Murders, directed by Kenny Leon, will have an exciting peer in a revival of August Wilson's 1987 play, The Piano Lesson, directed by LaTanya Richardson Jackson. Her husband, Samuel L. Jackson, who originated the role of Boy Willie in The Piano Lesson at the Yale Repertory Theater in 1987, will also join this revival, now in the role of Doker Charles, Boy Willie's uncle, who recounts the titular piano's history. The Pulitzer Prize winning play follows siblings who are at odds over whether to sell a piano bearing depictions of their enslaved ancestors. The appeal of these plays doesn't just come down to the material and the ethnicity of its casts, however. The black casts this season represent captivating newcomers and veterans from various realms of theater, film, and TV. So those only familiar with Jackson's explosive acting style in, say, an action-packed Marvel movie or a brutal Quentin Tarantino film, will now see how the actor's energy translates to the stage. The same will be true for Jackson's castmate Danielle Brooks, a star of the Netflix series Orange is the New Black, who made an acclaimed Broadway debut in The Color Purple in 2015 and tickled audiences as the brassy Beatrice in the Public Theater's 2019 production of Much Ado About Nothing. Film and TV are, after all, a different ballgame than the theater where actors must respond in real time to the action on stage and perform with a resonance that will reach the upper echelons of the balcony. That will be the challenge for John David Washington, Tenet and Black clansman, who is new to the theater and will be making his Broadway debut in The Piano Lesson. Elsewhere on Broadway this season, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II will transition from his arresting roles on TV, Watchman and Candyman, in a revival of Suzanne Laurie Park's Top Dog slash Underdog, a Pulitzer Prize winning work that follows the daily rituals of two impoverished brothers named Lincoln and Booth. He will make his Broadway debut opposite Corey Hawkins who played the charming cab dispatcher Benny in John Cho's film adaptation of In the Heights. Hawkins also played Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton. Most of these plays are contemporary, dating only from the last three decades or so. The neglect or erasure of early works by black artists and other artists of color is unfortunately common. But a West End and Young Vic revival of Death of a Salesman reconfigures Arthur Miller's beloved 1949 classic into a story about a black family, starring Wendell Pierce, Andre De Shields and Sharon D. Clarke, who won an Olivier Award for Best Actress for her portrayal of Linda Loman in the British production. So anticipation is running high this season not just for the polished onstage products, the glamorous and funny, tense and heart-rending black productions, but also for the array of black talent. From the Broadway of decades past to today's Hollywood stars that will meet create something utterly of the moment. Oh pardon me, that's oh, just reread that. Anticipation is running high this season not just for the polished on stage products, the glamorous and funny, tense and heart rending black productions, but also for the array of black talent from the Broadway of decades past to today's Hollywood stars that will meet creating something utterly of the moment. And what is probably our final article for this week, this comes from The Conversation. It was published July 29th. And it's some historical perspective. Charles Henry Turner the little-known black high school science teacher who revolutionized the study of insect behavior in the twentieth, early 20th century. On a crisp autumn morning in 1908, an elegantly dressed African-American man strode back and forth among the pin oaks, magnolias, and silver maples of O'Fallon Park in St. Louis, Missouri. After placing a dozen dishes filled with strawberry jam atop several picnic tables, Biologist Charles Henry Turner retreated to a nearby bench, notebook, and pencil at the ready. Following a mid-morning break for tea and toast, topped, of course, with strawberry jam, Turner returned to his outdoor experiment. At noon and again at dusk, he placed jam-filled dishes on the park tables. As he discovered, honey bees were reliable breakfast, lunch, and dinner visitors to the sugary buffet. After a few days, Turner stopped offering jam at midday and sunset and presented the treats only at dawn. Initially, the bees continued appearing at all three times. Soon, however, they changed their arrival patterns, visiting the picnic tables only in the mornings. This simple but elegantly devised experiment led Turner to conclude that bees can perceive time and will rapidly develop new feeding habits in response to changing conditions. These results were among the first in a cascade of groundbreaking discoveries that Turner made about insect behavior. Across his distinguished 33-year career, Turner authored 71 papers and was the first African-American to have his research published in the prestigious journal Science. Although his name is barely known today, Charles Henry Turner was a pioneer in studying bees, and should be considered among the great etymologists of the 19th and 20th centuries. Turner was born in Cincinnati in 1867, a mere two years after the Civil War ended. The son of a church custodian and a nurse who was formerly enslaved, he grew up under the specter of Jim Crow. The social environment of Turner's childhood included school and housing segregation, frequent lynchings, and the denial of basic democratic rights. Despite immense obstacles to his educational goals and professional aspirations, Turner's tenacious spirit carried him through. As a young boy, he developed an abiding fascination with small creatures, capturing and cataloging thousands of ants, beetles, and butterflies an aptitude for science was just one of Turner's many talents. At Gaines High School, he led his all-black class, securing his place as valedictorian. Turner went on to earn a a, a bachelor of science degree from the University of Cincinnati and he became the first African-American to receive a doctorate in zoology from the University of Chicago. Turner's cutting-edge doctoral dissertation The Homing of Ants, an Experimental Study in Ant Behavior, was later excerpted in the September 1907 issue of the Journal of Comparative Neurology and Psychology. Despite his brilliance, Turner was unable to secure long-term employment in higher education. The University of Chicago refused to offer him a job, and Booker T. Washington was too cash-strapped to hire him at the all-black Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute in Alabama. Turner spent the bulk of his career teaching at Sumner High School in St. Louis. As of 1908, his salary was a meager $1,080 a year U.S., which is around $34,300 in today's dollars. At Sumner, without access to a fully equipped laboratory, a research library, or graduate students, Turner made trailblazing discoveries about insect behavior. Among Turner's most significant findings was that wasps, bees, sawflies, and ants, members of the hymenoptera order, hymenoptera, are not simply primitive automatons as so many of his contemporaries thought. Instead, they are organisms with the capacities to remember, learn, and feel. During the early 1900s, biologists were aware that flowers attracted bee pollinators by producing certain scents. However, these researchers knew next to nothing about the visual aspects of such attractions, when bees were too far from the flowers to smell them. To investigate, Turner pounded rows of wooden dowels into the O'Fallon Park lawn. Atop each rod, he affixed a red disc dipped in honey. Soon, bees began traveling from far away to his makeshift flowers. Turner then added a series of control rods topped with blue discs that bore no honey. The bees paid little heed to the new flowers demonstrating that visual signals provided guidance when the bees were too distant to smell their targets. Although a honeybee's ability to detect red remains controversial, scientists have determined that Turner's bees were likely responding to something called achromatic stimuli, which allowed them to discern among various shades and tints. Turner's astounding range of findings from three decades of experiments established his reputation as an authority on the behavioral patterns of bees, cockroaches, spiders, and ants. As a scientific researcher without a university position, he occupied an odd niche. In large part, his situation was the product of systemic racism. It was also the result of his commitment to training young black students in science. Among his Alongside, pardon me, his scientific publications Turner wrote extensively on African American education. He called for the widespread public education of African Americans in all subjects. Turner was only 56 when he died of acute myocarditis, an infectious heart inflammation. He was survived by two children and his second, li- second wife, pardon me, Lillian Porter. Turner's scientific contributions endure, his articles continue to be widely cited, and entomologists have subsequently verified most of his conclusions. Charles Henry Turner was among the first scientists to shed light on the secret lives of bees. That brings me to the end of our time for this week's Black Experience Hour. Thank you for joining us. AINC Programming is brought to you by Warner Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.